Brian Harvey, researcher, and my name is Bernard Sweeney, and I'm doing this podcast in the premises of Rua Red, and it's an interesting podcast because God knows where to start with it. There's been a lot of controversy. Brian has found himself in the in the paper in recent times under an article by Kitty Holland, uh, Traveller uh, Community and Homelessness. And that report was commissioned, I believe, by Pabby Point, funded by the HSE, prepared to be launched. Brian was already suited up. The last minute got a call or a text or an email, some former correspondence, and told it isn't happening. It's going to be pulled. And then was followed up with a quoted quote uh, with two explanation marks on each side of it, uh, threatening, well, when I say threatening, it's a legal threat, I guess, when you tell someone not to spread it, talk about it, provide it to anyone, or there'll be legal consequences. How do you feel? This is a strange story, isn't it? And you've outlined many of the uh, the key stages. Um, I think there's a couple of things here. Um, one is that if you work in the field of either homelessness or the traveller community. This is very contested territory. There's a lot of people arguing over the area what government should do, what government should not do, what is the nature of the problem we're looking at. And for me, there being arguments about the text in reports over homelessness or the traveller community, there's nothing new about that. Just um, rewind over this moment, if you don't mind me, and I keep interrupting you know, I'm like, I'm no manners at all. But um, this is a unique report. This is, was the first of its kind into traveller homelessness. Yes, and I, th- I think that's a very good point because and it was an attempt to put the two issues together. So if you have two contested areas uh, and you put the, the, the two of them together, um, you could well be... Um, anticipating, um, shall we say, a certain amount of discussion on that. However, this one was unusual insofar as, as you've correctly said, uh, the report was within hours of launch. Um, and suddenly I was informed that this was to be an internal launch uh, only within uh, Pavi Point, which commissioned the research, and that, that's their decision, that's fine. Um, but the um, a public launch would be delayed uh, sometime into July of this year, um, and only a couple of weeks into July I got a um, I was informed in, in slightly legalese language that the report was not to be distributed, disseminated, uh, cited, referenced in any other way like that. Um, and that is, I think, the first time that I can think of, certainly in recent years, in which a report with which I've been involved has actually been prohibited uh, from any kind of circulation, a kind of uh, application almost of the Official Secrets Act. <laughs> Just for our listeners, uh, Brian, you're a researcher. Tell us a bit about your background, how long you've been involved, what kind of work you do, where you've been, places and faces and so on and so forth. Yes, of course. Um, I I started my career as a youth worker for a number of years. Um, I then worked in the Simon community for seven and a half years in the 1980s where I was the information officer and campaigns officer. But we had a particular dimension to that, which was that uh, one of our members contested the Shannon election, uh, Senator Brendan Ryan, and he was elected uh, to the Shannon for that period. Uh, So I was in the fortunate position of working with him in the Shannon, which meant that our campaigning work could be more effective uh, because any issues that came up could be put into the Eructus literally that day. And uh, we were able to advance our agendas more speedily than he otherwise could. 
1989, um, I, I left uh, Simon. I set up my own one-person company, as it were, as uh, it, for independent social research. Uh, I wanted to broaden out into other areas beyond homelessness, into poverty generally, uh, into the world of voluntary organisations and uh, non-governmental organisations, NGOs, into equality issues, into particularly into community development, um, into human rights. And I wanted to do that also in a um, context that was more than just this jurisdiction, um, but how these issues developed in Northern Ireland, in Great Britain, and also in the European Union, from which I felt that we'd a lot to learn and which provided an important context, indeed a vital context, for social policy affecting all kinds of, of groups, including what we're talking about today. Wow, that's impressive. May I ask you, without giving away, how long have you been involved, how long have you been working as a researcher? How many years would you say? Um, that was in 1989, um, so you could... <laughs> 1989, I was 14 years old when you, when you got involved. But you're still a very young, fresh man, I can tell you. And you've been to Europe, so you've seen different cultures. When you see different cultures, does it broaden the mind? Does it... Oh, in inevitably it does. It's, it's um, I would say, very difficult, I would say almost impossible um, to go to the, those other European countries. For example, if you look at, say, the... Um, the, the, the big countries like uh, Germany, uh, France, Italy, it's difficult not to be impressed by their health services, their social welfare services. If you go to Scandinavia, it's impossible not to be impressed by their commitments to gender equality, to the involvement of voluntary and community organisations, what we call civic society, in what they do. If you go to Eastern and Central Europe, right, right across to Russia, you will see the role that um, uh, voluntary organisations have played in, in social construction you have also seen, and this is an inheritance from the socialist period, the very positive role of the state uh, in providing for education, for housing, for welfare, for preventative health services and so on. So there's, there's an awful lot from there that I think we could learn. And in this country, we're, I think, more eager to learn from the distant English-speaking uh, destinations yeah. who, who have done many useful and interesting things. Um, but Ireland does share a common political project with these other countries, uh, many of whom are much more appropriate to us in terms of size, if nothing else, uh, from which I, th I think we could learn a lot. Yeah, I was going to say that because Ireland is effectively one of the member states. It, are, it yes. is in a different part of the world. It isn't outside the same scope of or the same platforms and foundation yes. as Germany, France and Scandinavia. Yes, yes. But yet you're almost saying that Ireland doesn't even bring a drink of water compared to these establishments. Why do you think that? Why do you think they haven't... Um, I, I, I think, and I, I would uh, attribute this analysis to the um, professor of history at University College Cork, Cho Lee, um, who said that we are, we are lazy, we are lazy about our language. Uh, we look to English-speaking countries. Uh, we don't follow the harder but much more interesting and productive pathway uh, of looking at those other countries where maybe they do speak a different language, but where they have more to teach us. And he gave the comparison of Denmark uh, because he said, look, Denmark is interesting. It's a small country beside a big, powerful uh, neighbour like us. Yeah. Um, yet it's a country that was very poor in the 19th century, like we were, uh, but how come they develop such an advanced welfare state uh, with such commitments to education, to children, to women's equality and so on? And we need to look at those reasons and 
why don't we look more at countries like that? It's an agricultural nation as well, which would be other reasons. So we've tended to look at distant countries with which we speak the same language, but with with whose relevance, I I would argue, is in some cases doubtful, while avoiding others that are actually physically a lot closer, from which we could learn much more. And in any case, the old excuse of they didn't speak English is no longer valid um, because um, they have taken the trouble to learn English. Most of the people involved in policy work that most people there have, and indeed they speak it embarrassingly well compared to uh, some of our own people. (laughs) I've met that many times. I've met people that have spoken beautiful fluent Irish Uh, and you get a bit kind of downhearted when you realise that we were told we're encouraged to speak the Irish language but when we got to Ireland we found the vast majority of people don't speak it themselves Yes, yes. I remember one post and it's a bit off the track but there was one guy I think he was a right wing fascist or racist whatever terms you want to put on but he was kind of screaming through Twitter and he was shouting at the foreigners with explanation marks over them he was telling the foreigners that if they wanted to come to Ireland they better learn how to speak English. So that'll well, tell you. We, we know, and I, I saw it, I should digress again for a moment, <laughs> one film of a Chinese man who wanted to come to Ireland. He, he looked up in his local library that the official language in Ireland was Irish. So he went, he spent a year or two learning Irish in China before he arrived here. He arrived at Dublin Airport, was surprised that people did not respond very quickly to him in the Irish language. Uh, eventually went into a, a, a pub to ask for a drink, which was what he was told uh, an early appropriate thing for him uh, might be to do. And he again found <laughs> struggling with the bar. What a stereotype. Until, until a man came over from the back of the pub and began speaking very fluently and very well with him and they had a great time but one of the other people in the pub said jeepers he said i never knew paddy spoke chinese yeah <laughs> it goes to show you and also yeah, i think there's a lot to be said because you know i like talking about colonization and uh, i think maybe the psychological effects after colonization mm. yes. or so-called post-colonialism yes. is that if none of them systems had changed in 22 the institutions the education the legal land run all the everything literally, unchanged, that that in some way had eroded on the Irish mentality and had suppressed it. So you'll find, what I find, is a lot of Irish people don't speak the Irish language, but actually get very angry at people, and particularly people who are not Irish, speaking the Irish language. I suppose I associate that with some form of trauma, is that that their own language has been erased from them, and it kind of almost hurts them. Because if you look some of the history, you'll see that for centuries, the English were pounding on the Irish, making them feel guilty and ashamed of their culture and their Irish language. To practically blame the famine on the Irish yes, yes. and all these deaths. Um, and I, it's all linked for me because as a traveller growing up, we were taught the exact same thing. Backward cultures, wayward cultures, this kind of culture, learn how to talk right, get a job, go to a school. And later on in life, when you realise and you're looking into it more and more and more, is that the colonisation machines were never switched off, that they continued to run, and they had been, what I say, self-educating now at this stage, which would have been once considered an indoctrination, because it was by force. You know, if you didn't go to school, still today, if you don't go to school, you get into trouble with the legal side. So I think there's a lot of research that could be done on the effects of colonisation, because I believe that's where travellers are today. Now, let me push back a little bit into the NGOs. You spoke about NGOs. NGO is a non-government organisation. And you said you've been to Germany and France and you've seen their structures. 
How would you compare the Irish, particularly the traveller NGOs, to the European NGOs? Is there similarities? Is there difference? Is there rigid one way or the other? I think there are both similarities and there are differences. Um, by NGOs, the, the term more used in this country is voluntary or voluntary and community organisations. Um, I think that they are similar in many ways and the kind of forces that, 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 that bring them into being um, are quite similar. And you've seen, for example, because of the homeless crisis, many new small voluntary organisations appearing around Dublin, uh, for example, feeding homeless people in, in the evening. That's right. Um, and that has caused some consternation amongst some, some of the authorities. Same is true in Germany. Many of them have sprung up over the during the course of the COVID crisis who've gone to help those who have been most affected, particularly in their health, uh, particularly by poverty as a result of what has been going on. I think though that there is one particular problem which we have which comes back to the point you were making a moment ago about colonisation, which is the mentality around it that many of the ideas of uh, you use the term, I think, subservience, deference um, by people to authority tend to persist long after the coloniser is gone. Yeah. Um, and I think we have a um, voluntary and, and community um, sector that, that can be quite deferential to authority in this country. I, I gave you perhaps the most obvious contrast came after 2008 when the austerity measures were brought in. That's right. Um, and at that time there was quite an uprising in Greece against the authority regime. There was huge protests, there was uh, even a vote which was against the Europe, went against the European Union briefly um, at that time. But to me the most telling phrase was a chant that was sung by the marchers uh, and this was uh, put out on uh, Britain's Channel 4, I didn't see it on our own state television, in which they were singing, and you'll have to believe me that this is an accurate translation, um, that they were singing, uh, we're not the Irish, we're the Greeks, we do not capitulate. I've heard um, that, yeah. And in Ireland, um, there were challenges, there were challenges to the austerity regime, I think particularly of the uh, spectacle of, of hope and defiance, which was... Um, um, organised by uh, St Michael's Resource Centre in, in Inchicore, uh, which did challenge and the authorities and so on. And there were others, so the water charges, protests and That's so on. Right. I think the overall point that I'd make that it was quite muted uh, compared to what happened in Greece. Uh, and likewise, when we come to the, the current issue that we're talking about, um, I think that if the Irish state uh, attempts to um, suppress, which it did uh, briefly succeed in doing um, an important, uh, in my view, uh, report because it was the first of its kind on, on a critical issue in the field of homelessness and the traveller community. Um, I would have thought that was a, a serious issue that, that, that merited challenge across a wide uh, variety of fronts. Um, I, I, I always say to people that if this had happened in Vladimir Putin's Russia, um, then the television vans uh, would have been around in, in a moment and it would be in the foreign pages of our newspapers. Or China. Um, but here it passes in comparative silence um, with the very honourable exceptions of the, uh, the Irish Times, Right to Know and quite a number of traveller organisations themselves. One of the difficulties I have, or not I have, it's, it's difficulty. Um, if you look at the Western world, say take America, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, they all have, let's say, the indigenous people, whether it be the Native Americans, Aborigines, and so on and so forth. Um, so in that setting, that contrast, you know 
who's not from the land and who might be from the land. Yeah. And usually all the white people among people who are black or brown are probably not from the land, they're from Europeans. So you can almost, you can distinguish and spot the racism a little bit more easier. Where in Ireland, we have the same skin complexion, but for centuries, and even two centuries before I went to the Americans in the West Indies, the Irish were the subject of uh, brutal regimes uh, yes. by the English, and not, not against the English now, them days are gone. But uh, the whole psychology behind the English colonization wasn't so much the land. Um, it was more about changing the uh, psychological makeup yes. of the land, yes. shifting that mentality. And they spoke about it in detail. Their poets wrote about it and it was engineered through the penal laws. Uh, can't speak the Irish language, uh, wearing uh, clothing, cultures and all of that. We have today, Irish travellers we call her, we're labelled now, but prior to that we would have been called tinkers, and prior to that it was itinerants, and it was hedge people, woods people, bogs people. It was always a title, uh, one label or another, uh, through a colonial setting in Ireland. So we continued with that uh, mentality, that culture. So we right are here today as travellers, and we, the other group who's not travellers are calling themselves settled people. And from what you can tell, the settled mentality, not so much to people, because genetics has little to do with culture and mentality. You can be any culture and mentality, regardless of your genetic makeup, is that the settle was constructed out of the English conquest, a bit like the settlement of Ireland, the settlement of yeah. Dublin, 1963 yeah. was the settlement of the itinerants. So that colonial mentality has made us absolutely invisible when it comes to racism. Because nobody can understand how could there be racism when they use this term, you're the same race. Or sometimes we meet from groups from African uh, background, they'll tell us, well, you're a different race. You can't be victims of racism because the people who are persecuting you are white. But yet we've got centuries of proof that there is. Now, I'm not comparing our situation with other groups um, or suffering. It should never happened. But there is something to be said in the Western colonial mentality and all these other indigenous ethnic minorities that are facing almost uncanny uh, resemblance to our own situation in Ireland. That's a bit of a rant again, which I usually do, my friend. But um, I guess my question is, um, how, how do we get out of this situation? Because we've got travel organisations, and they've been up and running 50 years. And during that 15 years, it doesn't take away from all the good work they're doing, on the ground, the sports, uh, some levels of education for travellers. But at the back end of that we're looking at statistically psychologically travelers are getting worse 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 and worse suicides are much higher more frequent uh, alcohol abuse uh, drug abuse um, just a complete sense of hopelessness and now we've been categorized as roma and gypsies which we're not we're irish people we're from the land we come from an old culture um, so yeah, bring me back to the travel organisations and you mentioned that you worked in throughout Europe and other NGOs. Are they all led by, let's say, European or white settled middle classes? Have they that much in common? I think you'd need to look at traveller organisations one by one uh, to get an answer to that question. I'm certainly aware of traveller organisations which are entirely traveller run and some of they tend to be very assertive about their situation um, and the situation which their local communities which are often in rural Ireland find themselves. There are some national organisations which that is also true. There are some which are involved the two together, both with settled people and um, uh, uh, people from the traveller community on a cooperative basis. Historically, it certainly was the case in 
around the time of 1963 um, that you had what was called at the time itinerant settlement committees. And they were run by people who would be called perhaps a bit disparagingly do-gooders. Um, they tended to be um, middle class, certainly white, settled people, as you would call them. And um, there's one thing that worse than uh, do-gooders, and that's people who don't try to do any good at all. Um, so there was merit in, in what they tried to do. But yeah. I, and quite a number were inspired, for example, by the Quakers, who have a very honourable role in uh, working with um, people who find themselves in very, very difficult and challenging uh, social conditions that, that go back to the uh, famine, where they were one of the few groups to provide very concrete help um, to, to people who were starving. Um, many of the more enlightened uh, people in the um, uh, what we call the um, itinerant settled committees quickly realised that this was whilst it might provide some immediate help was not the way to go in the medium term and certainly not in the long term uh, and they sought uh, ways uh, in which they could try to um, hand power responsibility opportunities um, uh, positions um, over to um, representatives and of the travellers and travellers themselves. And that, that process did begin to happen. There was, I understand from the history, and by definition it's not well documented, attempts by travellers to form their own organisations in the 1960s. And there was an episode I hear even of deportations and things that happened there, which were stoutly resisted by the authorities because they were considered a threat to the established order. And they were in their own way, um, though one would argue that the reaction was uh, disproportionate, uh, even even we one overlooks the fact that it was just plain wrong. Um, so there has been a change over the years, um, but yet we're still some way from seeing all traveller organisations led by travellers. Um, yeah. If you look at some of the programmes I, I mentioned to you earlier, Eastern Europe, um, some of the programmes run by the Soros Foundation are, are, are interesting and are, are worth looking at here. And you could say, again, it's it's a do-good, a philanthropist at work, and, and that is true, and if George Soros were here, he would, he would fully accept that. But his approach, um, which again I think we could learn from, is based on a human rights-based perspective. It's based on travellers having rights as minorities, but above all, just as human beings. It's about social rights, about rights to housing. Yeah. Uh, it's about rights to language. Uh, it's um, about rights for, for um, in, in these countries, Roma women and so on. But he puts a lot of resources, or, his, or he and the people he works with, and he does work consultatively, have put a lot of work into, for example, leadership from the traveller community, particularly encouraging young people who tend generally to be women more than men, to spend several years, while funded by him, to become leaders of their communities, um, to um, meet other Roma organisations, in this case in other East European countries, to travel abroad, uh, abroad, to take part in the processes of political representation for their communities and so on. And it's a very much a medium and long-term uh, investment. But some of those projects, programmes, um, ideas, and he has made sure that um, he engages government because he pays for projects and governments listen where money talks yeah. on this kind for, the, for uh, better reasons than what we're used to. Um, so those things can be very useful. 
and very helpful. But I think some of the ideas of, of which he has spoken around rights, uh, about developing social programmes, looking at the hard issues around housing that we've been talking about, but having them traveller-led or their Roma-led and so on, those would strike me as some of the ways to go from which we could learn. Earlier on you mentioned about how sometimes the Irish government looked to the English because it's almost a default thing. Now, I used to, because we come from a different culture, so we share a different, or uh, we have a different mentality in most regards, it's uh, settled. So, for me, on the outside, looking at it, I could say that the west of Ireland, being as traumatised as it has been, <coughs> looks to Dublin. Yes. And thinks, no, there's nobody like anybody unless they come from Dublin. And Dublin, who were suppressed by the English, looks to England as if nobody else could do it. So this is about the oppressed becoming the oppressors in many ways. And it almost falls into that psychological channel. So when we talk about traveller leadership, and we talk about the 1963 report, which was a commission report by the government. And again, I don't want to criticise or demonise anyone. Um, my issue is right here, right now, outside of history, outside of the settled culture and uh, their instruments and their institutions. And we can say, quite openly and frankly, that all their attempts to help the traveller community, whether it be hell is paid with good intentions or not, has resulted in almost a psychological genocide of a people because travellers are still absolutely powerless. And we can say, well, there's been some improvements here and there's been some improvements there and there's a little bit of funding and courses. But psychologically, we are in a worse position now in the history of our culture. I would imagine the only other times we were like this was during the extremes of British conflicts or during the famines or natural disasters. So we are absolutely powerless. So when I see your report and I see the incidents with the HSC and Pabby Point, all I see really are establishments, colonial establishments, because the settled mentality was constructed out of colonisation. And there's no escaping that. So therefore, you cannot be telling travellers how to live, how to do this, that or the other, when they themselves are having an identity crisis. They cannot be the default Irish while using all of the colonial instruments and machines, and then worse than that, using them against Irish people, not just travellers, native speakers, people on the islands, and so on and so forth. So that's my big issue. So when I see people like um, Ronnie Fay, who's the coordinator of Pabby Point, and I've seen other people in the HSC, and they're over back and they're corresponding with one another, there is no travellers involved there. There is no travellers having a say in that. Now, if you can take your someone like yourself, who is a respectable human being that works in this area for a lot, it's a great reputation, um, I've looked up a lot about yourself and it's brilliant. If they can almost push you to one side and tell you almost to go away and mind your business, we, we're calling the shots there. No travel input. Um, that's the chronic issues that we're facing and nobody can seem to get their head around it. The other thing I noticed about that report, that it cost €30,000. Now I think, look, I don't know much about them. I've been unemployed for years. Um, so I don't know the structures. I don't know the what's the right cost for such a report. But I imagine if you got thirty thousand to do a report for a unique report, first of its kind of report, report in the backdrop of a people literally dropping dead. That this report must be important. This could save lives. Now I've seen reports in the past by travel organisations, whether the traveller involvement or not, because it's one thing the traveller being in, in the organisation, but whose organisation are we in? We didn't design them organisations. They don't resemble nothing like our culture or our identity. We're in a settled people's convenient establishment that was designed for their, uh, their comfort. 
Now, the reports I would have seen, one report was to research, to tell the travellers how the settled people feel about them. Now, I can assure you, I'm 46 years old, since I was a child, since I was six years old, we knew how settled people felt about us. We knew it from the schools, we knew it from the media, the radio, the TV, the politicians, the angry person whenever they thought it was okay to call gypsies, tinkers, knackers and every other vile name to come into their heads. We are powerless to that. So when I see reports, and this was the third or fourth report, the same organisation had pulled up to tell us how much the settled people dislike us. If we didn't have enough issues psychologically with suicides to be told that you're already hated, no we're already hated, and that report cost €150,000. So €150,000 for about a second or third report to remind us how much we're hated. And here's yourself, that got, you could receive 30000 is that correct? Oh. You, um, oh, sorry, I, I said 30000 The budget allocated um, to this project was €30,000. Um, I was not aware of how much money was allocated. I was invited to make a proposal based on the brief that I saw in early last year. Um, I put in a proposal for €10,000 um, on which VAT was liable. And that's what I was paid. I was paid promptly for that. There was no issue about that. Um, but it does mean that two-thirds of the budget, or almost two-thirds of the budget, is still there. Um, I, I don't know, and it's not my business to ask how was the rest of it spent? Has the rest of it been spent? A designer um, was um, uh, was asked to do a design of the report, which was done well, I have to say. But that actually comes to the point, if you are going to allocate 30,000, uh, including in which you pay me 10,000 for a report, why do you then want to bury it? Uh, I think that raises a very serious question. Well, for um, me, it's a lot of questions, yeah. because It, it means money is wasted for just a purely at face value. Well, that's one, that one, again, uh, uh, like sometimes if you feel like you want to bang your head to the wall or something, but why would you even put 30,000 into the report, um, not go ahead with the launch? Um, you got paid for your fee, the designer got paid. Nobody knows where the rest went. And I'm quite honest, even at this point, I don't really care. Because the fact that it was 30,000 to save lives and on the other hand 150,000 to tell us how much we're hated, there's something fundamentally not right there. The representation of travel organisations is not a democratic one. We don't have a democracy. We can't say who should represent us. We don't vote who represent us. We've got settled people who are handpicking travellers and have done for the last 20 and 30 years. Now we're talking about people who work in community development. You said you know, you're familiar with community development. Some of the principal of community development is empowerment. It's one of the core ones, isn't it? It's the core principle. It's the core, right? Yes, it is. I know people who've been working in these organisations that also have taught as lecturers in colleges, teaching community development to students. The same person and persons have never given up their position as a chairperson, let alone their employment. Five years is a long time in the NGO sector. It's long enough to teach someone and empower someone. But when you're 10 years there, 15 years there, 20 years there, 25 years, 30 years, 35 years plus, and still not giving up your positions of power, and we're looking at travellers dropping day left, right and centre, we're talking about representation, and we're talking about a new Ireland, a new identity, so on and so forth. I mean, 
do you understand why we want to bang our head to the wall? <laughs> I think um, part of this and, and the, the whole issue of what has happened here has raised uh, more questions than answers is we still do not know, despite having the benefit of uh, Freedom of Inf Information Act release of documents, as to the basis on which um, the HSE did not want this report to go ahead. The only information we have from a snow a storm of uh, paperwork um, is that it was considered that releasing this port would be premature and that it would not be in the public interest and that it needed checking. That's as close as we've ever come. Rewind that one more time, my friend. To, to the first one? That releasing the report would be premature. And now this is more than a year after the report was done. Um, second, that it would be contrary to the public interest which of itself begs the question of who defines that public interest. Um, and third, that it needed checking, despite the fact that it went through an exhaustive process of checking in Pavi Point Could itself. Could you just remind people that this did not happen in North Korea? This happened in Ireland? Well, sometimes one might wonder. <laughs> they were deciding what might be the public interest and whether or not they should release it. Um, you're right, it, it raises a lot more questions. And there seems to be a whole lot of conflict of interest going on here. Because, all right, let me ask you another question. In your expertise, in your um, life experience, have you come across situations like this before where reports are suppressed? And if you are, could you give us an example? What community, what country or... What I can tell you is the research that was commissioned, uh, which, which I undertook for the advocacy initiative a number of years ago, and the report was called, Are We Paying For That? And this came from an incident in which I think it was Focus Ireland um, had been um, putting some pressure on the deputies of Dáil Éireann for more enlightened policies towards the homeless. And uh, Focus Ireland received a phone call from one of its funders um, ask, referring to the publication in question, asking, are we paying for that? Uh, in other words, was state money being used as an instrument of influencing public opinion, in this case political opinion, um, towards more enlightened policies. And was that related to homelessness also? That related to homelessness, you're absolutely right. Um, and in the course of the research on are we paying for that, the, the, the research was neutral in the sense it was not looking for bad examples, as it were. It was asking a question which could be answered three ways. Does the Irish state support advocacy by NGOs? Is it neutral about advocacy by NGOs? Or is it against advocacy by NGOs? And the answer was yes, yes and yes. There were instances uh, of the state being very comfortable with entirely accepting of and supporting advocacy by voluntary and community organisations. There were examples of the state, I wouldn't say not caring, but it, it was, was uh, neither supported nor, nor discouraged such advocacy. But there was a very substantial part of the report looked at ways in which the state did not support advocacy or tried to set out guidelines whereby voluntary organisations had to show very clearly that any money that was spent on advocacy must have come from a source other than uh, the state budgets. Uh, which put someone in, in a ridiculous uh, accounting situations and so on. Agavacy uh, is where people may be either what political, outspoken, raising issues. 
Yes, I mean, it referred to people going on radio, it referred to people being in local or provincial papers, um, it referred to any highlighting of issues. Another area that, that was controversial, it wasn't just homelessness and issues affecting the traveller community, it was disability. Um, this was considered um, quite a contested area and uh, voluntary organisations working in the field of both intellectual and physical disabilities, um, quite a number of cases were recorded of the uh, of the state trying to stop criticism of lack of funding, lack of rights, lack of services, and so on. Um, so there, there is a there is a problem, I think, of dissent in this state. The degree to which the state will tolerate uh, dissent or not. Um, now it, we have to remind ourselves that uh, the freedom of speech and advocacy is guaranteed to us under our constitution. There's no law to prevent it. Uh, so for the state to use funding as an instrument uh, to, to silence people, it, it's actually legally wrong, it, it, it's constitutionally wrong, it's anti-democratic, it's contrary to the spirit of uh, civil society um, being facilitated to play a role um, in, in the development of society and having its say. Ultimately, all decisions uh, must and, and, and should be made by our democratically elected institutions. But the point, that the question is to what degree can civil society organisations, voluntary and community groups have a free say in arguing their case? That's really uh, what is at stake here. Yeah, there seems to be a lot, there seems to be a huge vacant hold there. Um, it, it, yeah, it's an interesting one. Um, earlier on I mentioned about a, one particular report that cost in the region of €150,000 that could have put, what, at least 30 travellers to Trinity College, maybe, or some college. But this 150,000 to, to be told how much were hated and disliked and so on and so forth. The state, for somehow or another, seems to spend a whole lot of money in making things not happen, stopping things in their tracks. Uh, we know about the funding over the years that had not been drawn down uh, by councils to give people accommodation and give them a chance, uh, give them a life, give them hope. We've seen that there's been the funding in Mayo County Council a number of years ago. I remember this very well. They were literally taking the money out of the allocated money for accommodation and using it against travellers in legal evictions, uh, putting up barriers, boulders, manpower, machines. So when people say there's a sometimes not a political will, it's quite the reverse of that. There's a lot of political will, but it goes against uh, goes against the people and the organisations. Now, other thing there you mentioned about the freedom of information, how important that is. When you run into these issues, well, sorry, you didn't run into them. You, you were smashed into them. <laughs> um, how did you resolve it? I mean, did you just did you ring them up and say, look, I want this published because I'm annoyed? Um, I know there's a an article in the the story.ie and basically they're talking about themselves over the course of weeks if not months that they've been bombarding the HSE with freedom of information requests related to this report and they've been flogged off one way or another then all of a sudden they released them on a Friday a bank holiday Friday um, nobody really got no notice there was no launch it was pretty much by email which questions again where the rest of the money go if they didn't have a launch and they didn't publicise and so on and so forth. Had you any difficulties in that area of dealing with both, I suppose, HSE or uh, Pavy Point, whoever you were trying to deal with, so you could release your work? 
Um, first of all, I, I had no involvement in the campaign uh, to get this report released. Um, there are ethical boundaries between what a researcher may or may not do. And just to explain this in more detail, obviously when the report was initially suppressed, I, I had a copy on my computer. Um, but I'm bound ethically to not or to release, to release or not release a report according to what the client wants or doesn't want. And if the client instructs me, you shall not release, disseminate or the rest of the language that was used, then I, I may not do that in the same way if you're a journalist writing for one paper, you can't just give the story over to another because it didn't come out the next yeah, day. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so there are important considerations there. And I did not um, re release the report until it was publicly uh, published by, by Pavi Point in the end. Okay, What I did do, though, um, was that I had planned on the morning of the public launch, which was the 22nd of June, to send a note to the many people, and they numbered, uh, I think, somewhere between 50 and 70, who would help me with the report. Uh, I do what I was planning to do, what I always do, which is those who kindly helped, and many people, uh, travellers and non-travellers, like contributed a huge amount to this report. I mean, this this is their report. Yeah. This is what they told me. This is their voice. This is their experience. Um, the least that any researcher can ever do is to send them a, a copy of the report when it is published. Um, and when I was told that I could not release the report, instead of writing them to say, here is the report and thank you for your help, uh, I said, I'm thanking you for your help, but regret that I'm not in a position to send you the report because it has been suppressed. Oh, God, yeah. uh, so that was what I did. So, I mean, I, I was obviously uh, in a position, I'd always be in a position to discuss what had happened, but I was not in a position to send out the report, and I didn't. Quite a number of um, traveller organisations were, um, I think to use their own words, outraged uh, at what had happened. And they took up the issue. It wasn't me. They could, took up the issue. They lodged freedom of information uh, requests because they knew how to use that system. They also approached Right to Know, um, which is the um, uh, voluntary organisation that deals with freedom of information issues. Uh, Gavin Sheridan, who's, who's a, a well-known journalist who knows the Freedom of Information Act system well, and he put in the FOI, Freedom of Information, processes, uh, which culminated uh, a week ago in the HSE after I was told initially uh, not acceding to the FOI requests and I understand and I, I don't know the full story here so I must be cautious yeah. about this there, there may have been an intervention by the Freedom of Information Commissioner uh, which led to um, a substantial body of documentation being released only a small bit actually shedding light on what had happened um, but I would have to say that it was the traveller organisations who took the initiative here and this is important because you have mentioned the long-standing problem of if there's been so many reports about the situation of travellers um, going back so very far why has so little happened it's a very uh, leg legitimate well, one of the most researched yes. communities on the island yes and indeed uh, anguish question um, there there is there are several things around this but one of them is that and I'm under no illusions that um, uh, this particular report is going to somehow solve the problem of traveller homelessness. Uh, on, its, on its own, it's not. This report is only as valuable as 
the degree to which those who are concerned about the issue, uh, obviously the, the traveller community in the first and last instance, is prepared to take up the issues and pursue it. Um, so it, it is very much up to them um, and their friends and, and allies uh, across the political system and the media and those concerned with social justice issues, uh, their preparedness, their will and their skill yeah. uh, in pursuing these issues. Ultimately, it will come back to a um, politically rather marginalised, socially very disadvantaged group to be able to uh, pursue that issues. But I, I would have to say, based on my experience in, in recent weeks, there are some uh, very skilled and extremely determined uh, advocates uh, who, who, will pursue, who will pursue these issues. Yeah, I'm seeing that. And uh, it, it, it does give a great deal of hope. There's no doubt about that. Um, I find that most of these travellers that have this level of determination and are not taking a more poo-poo, <laughs> they had enough of it, um, are usually also the travellers that are not in the NGOs as such. Now, you mentioned somewhere, somebody mentioned that report, that there was seems to be almost a deficiency of traveller representation at higher levels of dealing with important issues. And I'm just curious because you would have been out speaking to travellers generally from one family to the next, one camp to the next, um, and I'm pr- want to ask you maybe what was your sense of these people? What was your because you when you walk into any culture and you're mixing with people white, you'll pick up on their culture a little bit. You'll pick up on their mentality, so to sure. speak, yeah. and you can get to like it and you find it comforting. And their people are, can be funny and a good sense of humour. The people you're dealing with, because if you look at the NGOs, you would think we're one of the most destitute communities, literally on the planet. They couldn't read or write or have no motor skills at all. Uh, to communicate with people sometimes um, and I, I say that not to disrespect anyone in the NGOs it's because the way they're geared and shaped I think it's up to do with when they're seeking for funding for education well then they're going to show you the most uneducated people who haven't been to school if it's homelessness you'll see the worst of that if it's something else you'll see the worst of that also so I think it's some something that a degree I guess what I'm trying to ask you is your own sense of feeling. Are the travellers you met outside the NGOs or even involved in the NGOs, are they educated in their own right and are they intelligent enough to know exactly what they want in life? Um, intelligence is not in question. I didn't um, think it was either. <laughs> education is, though. Yeah. And, and uh, I think we must never make the catastrophic mistake of confusing the two. Um, there are... Um, certainly the, 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 the travellers I met and who contributed to the report have a huge amount to say. Um, they speak very clearly um, in a very dignified and clear way uh, about their situation. They're angry um, based on, on what they told me. They would appear to me to have every right to be angry. They're frustrated. Um, they are also uh, well able to speak of the strengths of their community and of their colleagues uh, and so on. Um, so it, it's, although it's a community that is in, intensely frustrated, it, it, is, it, it has not given up. Um, it's not going away any time soon. Um, they have, the, those who, who, who I spoke to have a lot of determination to progress and pursue these issues. Um, one person who, for example, contributed recently is, has a PhD, um, so that, I mean, when I see, and I, I, I did work with the uh, traveller community in Wexford a couple of years ago, um, those are people who have largely been deprived, deprived of formal education That's opportunities. Right. Um, 
but nevertheless many of them have learned as they've gone on through sometimes bitter experience of life and they've learned subsequently and they've informed themselves on these issues and they have plenty to say. There's, yeah. there's no lack of things that they have to say and it's very well rooted uh, in their lived experience and hopefully uh, my report will have, will have captured some of that and will have advanced some of that. I mean, I think I would also say that um, there is very little in my report that is new that travellers have not been saying for many years now. Um, it's possible that with this report it might read reach a wider audience. I don't know. Um, uh, but there's nothing terribly new in that. I don't think there was anything in this report so far that I've heard that has shocked travellers. They know that this is happening to them, like the report that, that you mentioned about attitudinal um, views toward the traveller community. Um, what's there may possibly come as a shock, a surprise, a disappointment to some people on our state authorities. Well, it shouldn't be because if they'd been doing their work and listening properly beforehand, yeah. they should not be surprised at this. But it would indicate that something or more and something appropriate should have been done by now. And there are a lot of concrete things that could be done here. Um, for example, um, the report highlights just one particular thing, the criminality tests um, that, are, um, that all people, it's not just travellers, all people are subjected to, to apply for local authority housing, um, that don't apply to most to people not applying for local authority housing. There's a presumption of, of potential criminality there. Now, so far as I could see, and I, I took advice from um, voluntary organisations working in the advice field, um, such, such requirements um, in, in these uh, local authority application forms are not only illegal because they ignore the Spent, Spent Convictions Act, um, they are administratively out of order because they're not proportionate or fair, but because they do not consider the welfare of children, they're also unconstitutional. So that practice could be, you, one could put a stop to that bad practice in the morning uh, if the government wished to do so. That's one of many bad practices because when you, when you factor in that they had the trespass law that they had for years off the back of the 1963 goodwill document, um, it, I think they may be part of them were trying their best. But at the same time, I remember that port you talked about travellers who were well-to-do, who had nice wagons, had... Uh, up the year vehicles. They were tradespeople, working people. And then there was a they were called them tinkers. Everybody was called tinkers then to yeah. suit the state. But most of these people were horse dealers, ass dealers yeah. and various other trades. But they were categorized as tinkers because I believe now is because we came from that Gaelic culture. Yeah. And Ireland had now had a new identity. It was called the settled Irish. The Irish. Um they didn't want to go into questioning who are these people? Who's your history? Where's your culture? Because we were still practicing elements of Brehan law and this honor-based society. Like I said before, my father was our chieftain, my granduncle was our king, and we queens and we warriors, and we didn't call them all of that, but yes. they were there. Yes. Um, so that kind of culture stayed there. Right up during the 1960s to 1980s, it became about institutionalization, segregation, specialized institutionalization. In other words, there were homes specifically just designed for the tinker children. And the idea was to beat, or not the idea beat, but was to get the <coughs> itinerant ways out of them. Other parts of that uh, process was about, as I everyone through most of this, travellers were not allowed to sign on on the same time, same date, same place as the settled people. 
there was like African Americans and the white people in America in the 1960s. So right up to there, we still got apartheid systems, apartheid laws. We got an education system that came from the colonial world. Um, we got institutions and illegal acts, and all these are again constitute or not constitutional, but colonial, and they're used against an Irish people. And we're here right now, labelled travellers, and the only power we have is through NGOs. And we, even with that, we have no power. We've seen HSE shut them down. We've seen the state before in the past pulling funding because they didn't like what we had to say. So we're like really just about submerged, suffocated and psychologically traumatised. Um, and again, it's a bit of a rant because sometimes I just like to say those things without even making a question out of it. But I will ask you a question. Do you see any similarities with the intentions of the 1963 report from the government side to absorb these people into the general population, to rid them of their identity and their ethnicity, almost to this point in day. I'll give you one specific example, which is the housing assistance payment. Um, the report which I wrote gathered together the statistics around uh, uh, traveller homelessness, and it's very evident. I mean, the, the first finding of this report is as a significant there is a significant level of traveller homelessness. Again, this is nothing new to, yeah. to travellers themselves. It's much higher than the rest of the population as a whole. This will not be a surprise either. Um, but we then look at what our government policies in this area. And government has explained many times that the primary response to homelessness is the housing assistance payment, um, which uh, requires that, that people who are homeless must apply to private landlords um, for housing in the private rented sector. Once they do, um, they do receive um, a subvention towards their housing costs, but at the same time they are also taken off the housing list while they do so. Now there's a problem about this because most most travellers, some do, and, and it's their absolute right if this is the form of accommodation that, that they're looking for, let's be clear about that. Um, but most travellers with whom I've spoken do not particularly want to go into the private rented sector if they can get in in the first place because we know that there are very high levels of discrimination against traveller yeah. applicants when hundreds of people are looking for the same flat or house. Um, so that um, by going into the pr private rented sector, although most travellers prefer to be in, somewhat in the vicinity of their immediate family, um, cousins, relatives uh, and so on, um, though perhaps not as, in, in as intimate physical contact as they often do find themselves on the sites. Yeah. Um, the, um, one could say that the housing assistance payment by dispersing homeless travellers across the private rented sector is a form of assimilationism. Now, if we look at the national str uh, uh, strategy uh, for travellers and Roma, the, 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 the strategy is done together, it does make reference to the importance of housing preference um, and that if particular uh, groups of people do not want to be forced into particular types of accommodation against their will, they should not be, which introduces a, a human rights element, something that we haven't mentioned and is rarely mentioned in, in this area. So I, I would see that the HAP scheme as such as an element of, of assimilationism. Um, do you think, Brian, that is uh, linked to... Um privatisation because remember uh, I think we might have mentioned before well, the 1960s that. had done more yes. in social housing yes. than they ever had yes. and now it's going to the private landlord yes so it's, it's a, and, and, and from, from a traveller point of view travellers tell me they see it as a, a, a dispersal 
in, into private yeah. rented. Um, when their own preference is known, if you actually ask travellers, which, I mean, I, I have to emphasise this because um, some of the authorities don't actually seem to ask, um, is... Um, is, is, is local authority accommodation um, and traveller-specific accommodation. Um, and that is what they're looking for because they know that uh, local authority accommodation is secure. That's right. You, 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 can't be, you can't be put out without a very good set of legitimate uh, reasons. Um, the cost is much less uh, than what you'd be paying in, in private rented. And the standards are better. Uh, this is not rocket science. Uh, why should you go into costly um, private rented accommodation that is completely insecure um, uh, and costs you a lot more where the standards are often poor when there's an alternative in front of you? And it's also added with the fact that uh, there's a high proportion of uh, travellers getting discriminated against. Yes. So you almost have one chance on the local authority list I was 20 years waiting for home. So if you've got one chance, you don't want to go into the private sector because three months, six months, 12 months on the road, you could be out in your head. Maybe he doesn't like you anymore. Yeah, for one reason or another. And now you have to go back to the council. Well, we house you. We're, you, know, you have to go back down the bottom of the list again. Yes, and a feature, uh, one of the most defining features of poverty is lack of choice. Um, those who have money have a choice of, I wouldn't say living exactly where, where they want to live, but they do have a certain element of choice. If you're on the local authority list, you've, you've limited choice. And this is an area where the situation of travellers and um, homelessness overlaps, um, because in, in looking in, in, into homelessness, although the sample in, included travellers, it was, it, that was a minority of it. One of, one of the most striking features was this issue of um, what we termed uh, two strikes and out. Um, if you turn down two offers, um, you um, effectively were off the list, which you could have been on for 10, 15, 20 years in any case. But what was happening was, and we documented this, um, was that people were being offered a choice in an area that they'd not actually paid for, uh, applied for. Uh, they might yeah. be offered a choice over the phone and it wasn't clear to them whether this was a discussion or a formal offer or not. It was afterwards they found out, when they, they questioned it and maybe asked for it, would something else be coming up, they found out afterwards that they just rejected, they'd, they'd formally made a rejection and it counted as two strikes and you're out. So um, it was That exactly happened myself. Yes. Exactly, over the phone. And I said, um, they said there is a house. Such a person used to live there. Such a person. What do you think of that? Yeah. I said, I don't think it'd be convenient. I don't think it'd suit me. Okay, fair enough, they said. And then when I came back, they said, well, you've already refused one house. And I said, what house? I was offered no house. So there, there were a lot of, um, I, I would have to say, malpractices uh, within, the, within the local authority. We identified another one, in, in, sorry, I identified another one in this research because people spoke to me and referred to the system of choice-based letting. Now, choice-based letting at one le level sounds very modern because it's internet-based and so on and so forth. And this is the system whereby uh, whenever a local authority house is available, um, that you have a week to bid for it. Okay, um, you put in a bid online. Okay, now there's a there's a couple of issues with this. Why should you always have to reapply whenever an individual house comes up? You've already been through the process of applying yeah. for local authority accommodation. You've already got past the criminality and other tests, and now you have to apply every single time for a house that comes up. Um, this is putting people through an awful lot of hoops. You you then apply um, the um, 
uh, it, it is known to the system whether you're a traveller or not because you have to use a PIN number which will have been given to you by an official who will know that or not. It is understood that if you are then successful, the list of successful applicants with their surnames is then um, circulated to local authority councillors for their approval oh because goodness. for some reason local authority councillors are expected to give their approval or not for each individual house letting, which is a strange procedure. Um, so it is quite obvious that in any community where there might be just one objection to travellers, that person's application is immediately dead in the water. Now, there's very little choice in that for the applicant. There's very little fairness. It gives scope. Uh, for racist objections. Uh, there are problems added with so many levels. This is nothing new. Travellers have raised these issues for many years. But this is the kind of procedure that could actually be changed quite quickly. We could go back to the uh, old system whereby there was a point system and that should uh, probably be changed, whereby local authority housing was the main form of housing done in, done in the States. It's not. In 2015, there were only 75 local authority houses built. Yet in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, 80s, the state was building five, six, seven, eight and a half thousand, thousand local authority uh, houses a year. It was a system that worked. It was a system that housed large numbers of people. It was a system that ran when this country was, I think we can all agree, a lot more prosperous now than it, it was then. Uh, it was a country which had a population of a little over at one time two million, we're now on five million. Um, so to go from a situation of building eight and a half thousand houses a year from a situation from for the types of homes that travellers could have used to one in which seventy five were built in one year is in an astonishing uh, turnaround, unbelievable, and, and, hardly, and, and hardly a good one. Um, uh, and this has been a problem since the um, essentially the the the. I said the Reagan Maggie Thatcher years. It was. It goes back to nineteen eighty seven. In in nineteen eighty seven, there was we were told a, a financial crisis. There was a a change of government. The government introduced what was called. Um, I think ironically the programme for national recovery and in looking for savings um, the government looked at education, it, it looked at welfare, it looked at health but it decided that housing was the one that should bear the brunt of the changes and it is very easy to turn off the housing tap because you can turn off the housing tap of funding now in the middle of 1987 and you've already got projects in train which will be paid for and will be finished off. But it does mean that if you turn off the tap, no new starts were made from 1978 onwards. So that, 1987, excuse me. So that from 1987, you'd, I, I think, something like uh, five, six, seven thousand houses being built. It fell 90% in only three years to 768, if, I'm, if my memory is correct. So the actual construction of local authority homes fell by 90% over three years and that was agreed by the three main political parties oh, of the state. and at the time the national campaign for the homeless warned it said if you do this you are creating a housing crisis in the future and the title of its publication was housing moving into crisis question mark um, and it uh, I think it gave the authors no pleasure um, to see that that, that that dark warning given at the time and which nobody contested um, has led to the um, extraordinary housing predicament in which uh, nationally we find ourselves today and of which uh, the traveller community is, is bearing uh, the, the sharpest brunt of that particular problem. I'm going to finish up now in a minute. Before I do, I was going to ask you a quick question. Did you find in your research um, through local authorities a quota system 
for accommodating travellers. And there has been one, there was in Sligo, there was one in Mayo, that every 10 units or 20 units spilled, only two travellers could be allocated. Which, you didn't come across that? No, I, I, I didn't experience that. Um, but I, I think there, there, are, there are a huge lot of problems and issues with lo- local authorities. Some I can see, and this is just... Yes, you are different, that's the thing about yeah, it. Yeah. I, I think one thing I would emphasise to you that some local authorities uh, have, have, have made some uh, quite positive efforts. But I, I, and I think one of the things that they have done is those authorities that have had the most successful outcomes in terms of uh, housing travellers have, have been those where the staff have come from backgrounds in community development because they understand the communities for which they have responsibility. And they have understood an essential core problem here, uh, which is that most staff in local authorities who deal with housing are not housing experts. They don't claim to be. They are generic staff who work across different branches of the local authorities, whether they're roads, Um, libraries, uh, it doesn't matter yeah. what else they are. Um, yet people who have n- little or no training for these responsibilities are put on the front line, they're put on the front desk. Um, they're not equipped and skilled for dealing with people who are in very dire accommodation circumstances, who are going through uh, great pain and social difficulty in their situations. They're not trained to cope with that. They don't, many of them have the skills or knowledge on how to process through uh, housing procedures and applications. Um, a lot of the skills in housing and local authorities are gone after 1987. Uh, so those have been lost and it takes, it's twice as hard to build things up again as, as to tear them down. So some of the, the local authorities that have made changes are those that have put on the desk and those who are put into the housing system. Those who understand the situation of travellers. There are those who do not have the two strikes and out policy. There are those who talk closely with them, who actually visit and meet travellers on their sites and in their accommodation and go to a lot of effort to find out where do they want accommodation, what do they need, what are their priorities. Um, the issues around, for example, trying to find larger houses. Um, this is, this is it's a small point, but it's an important one. Traveller families are larger. Uh, than in the rest of the community and there are many reasons for that and this is again not rocket science it's well known from the census it's well known from elsewhere yet most local authorities are building almost all their homes are designed for the the model settled family which is I think it's 2.1 or 2.05 good, children or whatever else my good so, friend the other day is an historian he pointed out to me during the pandemic yes. and the rules they were making because even if you look at it it was funny so well, we're looking to our neighbours to see what they're doing you can see them all out. Well, we're looking at the English and we're going following so on and so forth because they're really looking at the English but they come up with the rule of seven people at a funeral so my friend said well who else in the history had a funeral with several people yeah. if not the English because it's not an Irish thing no, it's not. So they're applying these rules to an Irish setting. Yeah. So what I'm really saying is this, this report has raised, I, I think, a lot of questions about the capabilities um, of local authorities. They're human resources. It, it, we focus a lot on the financial side of these things, but it's a human resource problem. Yeah. It's about having the right staff with the right skills. And if you have the right staff with the right skills, you're not going to apply daft or indeed downright inhumane procedures because they're going to see the negative uh, consequences. The thing about that, Brian, is that you're, then you're waiting for the right person to come along. 
and it might be like the manager of one building could be great, fantastic, but four years along comes another manager with a whole lot of attitude. There was was one one manager, it happened to be in in where we're sitting right now in South Dublin County Council, um, who tried to deal with the with this situation. First of all, he, in in trying to recruit travellers to work in the county council, uh, and again, I, I would often question myself, how many travellers are actually working in the, these housing departments themselves? Um, but to come back to D- Dublin South County Council, um, the manager introduced a system whereby he recruited travellers into the local authority. He went to the sites and set up a recruiting stand and a wow. desk. And this was mainly for, and you'll have to excuse the gender issues yeah. here, it was for men doing what is, was called then in the county council outdoor work. Okay, And then, and again, this was more orientated to the women. There was a requirement in the council that you must have a leaving certificate uh, to work in the county council. Um, and he said, well, this is keeping travellers out because not many travellers are leaving certificates. We have to do something better. Yeah. Uh, so what he did was have competency-based recruitment. Is he gone? Um, I, I suspect he is. Oh, damn it. And and as a result, travellers came to work in the local authorities. Several departments, government departments, set up internship schemes for travellers, so they were able to get past the um, "you're not qualified because you don't have experience." The lead department on that was the Department of the Marine. Not something one might have expected, but here were small initiatives, but important initiatives. Life changing, Brian. Be, they could be yeah. widespread throughout the state. You take one family who's in a difficult financial situation; they can't travel, they can't move, they can't work, and one their siblings or family members are in job. Uh, that supports everyone. So that one little job can be fundamentally changing for everybody. Exactly. Younger siblings seeing the older sibling going to work, yes. liking what they're doing. That encourages them to go into employment. Again, I go back to this whole NGO sector, which I can't still get my head around it because a lot of conflicts and over and backs. Is that I feel that we're actually excluded from the NGOs themselves in most ways because they are service providers. They do repeat the courses. I know the one organisation they had a travel woman on it, a false course for twenty three years. <laughs> you know they're repeating and repeating it, and. I, that's okay, but what happened was they were providing the service and they weren't giving ch- um, travellers the, the means of empowerment. Where I'm thinking, the, I know travellers left, right and centre up and down the country. They could take a piece of steel and turn it into a piece of art. Of take a few couple wires and create a device. Um, nothing that would hurt anyone, I can assure you. But the, the creative talent of people, with or without the education, and yet they're sitting there left idle, struggling for accommodation, struggling for recognition, one kind or another. And all they're really being told all the time is, well, you need to do, you need to go and get a job. You need to, or not a good, you need to get an education. You need to go to school. You need to do a course. Um, and all of this has been happening 50 years. We still see travellers dropping day quicker, faster. We're, we're actually living it worse despite in better conditions. Psychologically, we're living it worse than the history of the state has uh, impounded upon us. Let me finish off, and then I'm going to hand it over to you to finally finish it off. The reason I do this is a lot of reasons. I'm an Irish traveller, and I grew up around a lot of conflict, a lot of trauma. I grew up where, at a young age, my mother died. She dropped aid. My grandfather was murdered. His wife and his children burnt to death in the side of a tent. I had uncles who committed suicide. I had a nephew six weeks ago that committed suicide. And I'm going to the funeral of a cousin of 17 years old who committed suicide today. So all of these things, and I don't get paid for this, because I end up in conflict with the organisations. I believed in my heart to heart that they were doing it wrong. 
So you can't be telling travellers to do it this way and that way and this way and that way. Just to be travellers in a settled lens. This is this, how settled people wanted travellers to be. This is how to be a traveller. It wasn't that. Yeah, they pegged as a troublemaker. Anyone that went against them, anyone that questioned them, was a, a villain. And they had to be destroyed. <laughs> but they were talking to the wrong person because I couldn't be any more destroyed than I was anyway. So I've been persisting and sticking with it one way or the other. And I believe travel vision is, is about that. It is about saying to travel, we can, we can be creative. We have something that most of the settled people do not have, unfortunately. And it's that we have an imagination. We have got creation or creative mentality because we weren't disciplined for so long in the same institutions time and over and over again. Not take anything away from you, Brian. I'm sure you're a very creative person. But in the mentality to that side of things, that I believe that there is a, a world out there that we can recreate, that we don't need the formal educations to the degree that people think we need them. Because most of the settled people I see going through these systems are in there most of their life. They don't end up getting the job they wanted in the start with. They're straddled for de- debts. Um, and they look like they have a miserable life afterwards and they look like I've been cheated. So why not give people the opportunity to let us go into the arts, let us build forests, uh, build the woods, let us do natural environmental things that we are good at, that we are natural at. Um, that's why I want to go with Travision and my life, what's left of it. And I'll hand it over to you because if there's anything I left out, you can throw it in there now. Um, and anything you want to add, you're more than welcome. And then you can finish off by whatever. Saying thank you very much and we'll be back here again cause more trouble won't we Ryan <laughs> thank you very much you're more than welcome and I wish you the best of luck I know you've been going through a bit of a struggle uh, to get because you've been attached to it it's your life mm-hmm. and when you're passionate about what you've done and where you've been and you've seen people you've seen people into their eyes mm-hmm. and to walk away and leave that so I think and I hope you've inspired any and all other researchers mm-hmm. to find some way to go against these systems mm-hmm. and if you believe in your work and you believe it's valuable Go for it and fight for it. Okay. Thank you. Brian, thank you very much for coming in, my friend, You're and welcome. best wishes. Thank you very much.